Welcome to Expedition Real, the podcast where we learn from amazing people who've achieved extraordinary things, from climbing mountains to crossing entire continents. We'll hear stories from the ends of the earth and find out how we can make these expeditions happen for ourselves. Today I'm speaking with Paralympic gold medalist, explorer, scientist and Guinness World Record holder Karen Dark. We chatted about her life philosophy and mindset and got the lowdown on her upcoming expedition to Antarctica. My name's Sam Hops and I'm your host, so let's jump straight in with the next episode. Hi Karen, welcome to the podcast. Hi Sam, thanks for having me. Absolutely, anytime. Uh, so I wanted to start off with running through your introduction and you have a very long list of achievements on your CV, so I'll try and uh, reel them off. <laughs> In, in, in one go um bear with me so you have a paralympic gold medal and a paralympic silver medal para triathlon world champion you've climbed el cap mont blanc and maton crossed uh, the greenland ice cap you have a guinness world record for land speed using arm power alone i forgot about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah no no problem oh, that thing yeah um the, uh, you have handbiked on six of the seven continents, more on that later, uh, kayaked inside passage from Canada to Alaska. And if that wasn't enough, you've also written three books, have two degrees, a master's and a PhD. Um, so I'm clearly a weird type A person who just can't stop, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, just you're always on. And, and that, that brings me to my first question, really. Um, everyone has 24 hours a day in a day. How are you getting so much done? How are you achieving all these things? Well, I wish I, I wish I could say that I only needed about four or five hours sleep a night, but it's not true. I really, really don't get on well if I'm not sleeping as good. So I do get eight or nine hours a night. Well, eight. Um, I guess I don't have kids. So that's maybe one reason why I have more time. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So maybe, maybe that's part of it. And then I've never watched... Um, I've never owned a television since I left my parents' house. Wow. So that probably saves me quite a lot of time. And I do post things on social media, but I rarely actually get sucked into it. So that probably saves me quite a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> and I always, you know, I think it's Winston Churchill that said, if you want something, don't ask a busy man. So um, maybe just, yeah, I find, and, and, and I'm quite um, conscious about what I'm doing with my time. So often I have. I don't, I don't have a lot of routine, but every, most nights before I fall asleep, and certainly if I haven't done it before I go to bed, I think a bit first thing when I wake up, I kind of plan my day and what I want to try and do that day. Yeah. So I suppose that's quite intentional and focused. So mm-hmm. yeah, but there's a downside to everything. So on the upside, I might have squeezed a lot in and my friends joke and say I've lived 10 lives in one. But then on the downside, there's a side of me that, um, you know, have to be, have to kind of work on which is sometimes i'm i i'm too busy trying to go on and do things to actually just you know slow down and take time with people Mm. and have those long kind of conversations or not long conversations but you know just just hang out so that you know that's when other stuff happens in a kind of space that's less easy to define so as i get older i am trying to do just more of the the you know get the balance right and not always be trying to do things but also just be and share time with people and yeah that side's really important to me as well yeah i um i can certainly empathize with you there i mean i can't 
say say the claim that I have never owned a TV. Probably watch uh, a bit too much House of Cards and things in my time, but um, I do I do watch Netflix though. <laughs> <laughs> but the good thing about Netflix is you can just if something comes out, you normally can just binge the whole thing and get it out of the way, and you then. <laughs> Well, good or bad things. Um, but what, what keeps you kind of searching for challenges? What's the, what's the driving force, you think, so far? Well, lots of people ask me if, if I would have been like this if I hadn't had my accident. And I don't know the answer, obviously. I was paralyzed when I was 21 from the chest down. And clearly that made me, certainly in the beginning, that made me really go out looking for ways that I could still have adventures and mm -hmm. experience nature and be in beautiful places in the world. So initially I kind of went a bit frantic with it and tried probably about every sport you can imagine <laughs> from gliding to flying airplanes to kayaking. I don't know, everything I could really have a go at. Um, and I, But I suppose... The bigger thing is I've just got a really curious mind. I, I like to explore. I like to discover. So it's not only about places and sport, but also um, probably less people know about the, you know, some of the internal journeying that I, I've gone on. And I've, I've been involved in all sorts of interesting things from group healing and I don't know, all sorts of different names, cellular transformational healing. And I've trained as a hypnotherapist and I've trained in Chinese medicine and um, various other techniques to kind of, you know, dig into the brain and discover things. So I've got this kind of other side of me. And I think, I think it's really the common thread is that, that thread of exploration and not necessarily in the ge geographical sense of going out into the world, but also I've discovered that I can have a really amazing adventure just laid on, you know, my sofa for three months during COVID on my own with no one to talk to, just locked in a flat in Spain. <laughs> I, uh, I can imagine you've, uh, found you know being the way um, that you are with you know being curious and always trying to find something to do I can't I'd love to hear a bit more about how you've been uh, filling your uh, time what are you kind of learning or learning about now anything going on uh, um, so I suppose I've done during when lockdown first started back in March I did a lot of writing Mm -hmm. um, and creating some, I don't know if I'd be called, I'm not sure they were glorious enough to call them podcasts. They were just my um, readings of my writing, but yeah. really kind of reflecting on some of the, the, the things that I call inner gold. Mm -hmm. So I seem to be on a mission in my life connected to gold somehow. I haven't intentionally done that, but I used to be a geologist and my PhD yes. was in geology and it was all looking at gold in the Bolivian Andes. Um, and then obviously I kind of moved into a whole new life of um, Paralympic sport and pursuing gold medals there. And now since the Rio Paralympics, when I won the gold, I was actually really pretty broken after it. Um, I don't know if it was a kind of just a bit of burnout, but I've been doing you know the same thing for a long time. And partly that was why I got interested in Paralympic journey because I'd always been kind of a bit of everything and a, a master of nothing, it felt like. Mm -hmm. I was just always interested in trying everything and, and not really focusing on one thing. So I thought it'd be interesting just to try and focus on one thing and see if I could get to be quite good at it or to see what I learned through that process. But I think after 10 years of that and Rio ending, I was ready for, ready, ready for a change. So that's where this whole journey across continents has begun. And those journeys were different to journeys that I'd taken before. I did them with people who maybe hadn't done anything like that before. So they were on a big journey of discovery and I was 
observing their journey, um, you know, internally, kind of overcoming their own challenges and, mm -hmm. and really entering into a world that maybe a lot of them had never experienced before. And also going on my own journey, I suppose, kind of a bit of a, you know, pr probably this is the end of my athletic career. May, pro maybe or probably not going to do another Paralympic Games. So um, I was feeling a kind of process of that myself, of letting go and looking at what's next. And through those journeys, really experienced a lot of incredible um, emotions that I call inner gold from, you know, gratitude and joy and love and all sorts of really special things through the journeys that I've taken. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's kind of where I'm at, I suppose. Is that something that you practice um, deliberately, kind of this appreciation, gratitude? Do you like meditate or anything like that? I do, and that's, yeah, that's something that only began as a regular practice after the last journey I took, which was right. last autumn, um, what year are we in? 2019, the autumn of 2019, mm. I cycled across Europe, so starting in the north of France and followed the Camino de Santiago, uh, mm. down the, well, down the Atlantic coastline, and then across northern Spain following the Camino, and people say that it's, you know, it's kind of a pilgrimage route, and I'm not a religious person, I wasn't doing it for those reasons, and at the time, or some people do it not because they're religious, but because they're going through some sort of transformation and right. maybe looking for something. I wasn't aware that I was looking for anything on that journey. In fact, I was doing it with two Spanish guys who I didn't know that well. And there was a lot of swearing and a lot of drinking. And there was like nothing spiritual about the experience at all. Um, but at the end of it, I think sometimes to counteract their... Um, their kind of loco Spanish loco-ness because <laughs> yeah. I don't really drink um, or certainly not very much and so sometimes to counteract that I just listen to podcasts and a lot of those were maybe about you know some of this inner stuff um, quite a lot of work around some books by a guy called Joe Dispenza um, on um, one, a great one I like called Be Becoming Supernatural and right. somehow all these all I think I think five six weeks of listening to all this kind of changing transformational kind of books and various things made me get really into meditating and so since that journey so now for about a year and a half I have been meditating regularly yeah awesome. morning and night usually for sort of half an hour at least sometimes longer if I feel I need it wow um so I, I just want to circle back briefly on something you mentioned uh, a little while ago about kind of the exploration and science and things and and before your accident you were you referred to yourself as a, a rock doctor right um uh how did you what was that journey like getting into that as a profession how did you um start that journey what was what was it that got you interested in that career uh, career field in becoming a geologist mm. well it was kind of accidental because i actually started off doing medicine right at Leeds university and after three months, I suddenly had this kind of trauma about, I don't think this is what I want to do. Yeah. And when you walk out of the medical school at Leeds University, you walk past the earth sciences department. I kept looking up at earth sciences and thinking that sounds really interesting. Maybe I'd like to do that instead. And so I ended up right. switching courses after I think four months um, into the first year from medicine into a degree in geology and chemistry. So it was a bit random how it happened, really, because I'd never thought about being a geologist before that. And now that I am, I don't ever do, I, I don't look back in life, but probably if I, 
if there's one thing that I think probably would have been the ideal career for me retrospectively it is being a doctor because I'm I love people I love problem solving and I quite like um you know a bit of urgency and and exploring and maybe a bit of drama or something so yeah well it's funny isn't it how life kind of pl- like doesn't really follow your plan and you kind of just have to roll with the punches a little bit um, absolutely do you do you still practice any of your um geology uh, on, on any of your, of your trips at all or is it just something of, of the past now yeah really it's kind of something of the past but i do still feel this immense connection to rock um i found myself spending a lot of my year here in Mallorca, um and i have this incredible view out of my well, my brother would argue it's a view over a car park, <laughs> but I don't notice the car park. I just see these amazing mountains behind it, just yeah. raw rock and something about being in rock, especially also the northwest of Scotland is incredibly mm-hmm. special just to see that real rawness of the of the mountains and the rock. And it's something that still gets me really excited to see. Yeah. How long has it been since you climbed El Cap? I, I, I like talking about El Cap in particular because it's only recently that I actually saw Free Solo. And it's Honold. Um, mm-hmm. And what an, what a, an incredible um, experience and achievement for you to have done. Um, what actually, could you tell us a little bit about that, that, that as an experience? Yeah, so I think it was 2006 right. that I was part of a small group. We skied across the Greenland ice cap. And one of the team members on that journey was Andy Kirkpatrick, who is a climber and had climbed El Capitan, I think, 12 times before we went to climb it. Um, he, beca- he became our partner and um, he suggested that we should go and climb El Capitan. And at first it sounded like a totally wild, crazy idea. I really didn't want to. I just thought it was nuts. You know, I'd had a climbing accident. I'd lost friends in climbing accidents. Um, but there was another part of me that was really, really attracted to this enormous lump of rock and to go there and to kind of face maybe what was quite a big fear inside me to go back into this environment. I didn't really think of it as being a fear until I got there and we began climbing and I very quickly realized that all the things I used to feel when I was climbing didn't exist anymore. And instead it was replaced with huge amounts of fear and uncertainty and also um guilt I, I spent a lot of time you know thinking about what my parents and my family had gone through when I had my accident and now what was I doing back here doing this again um I told them a white lie that I'd gone on a, on a California road trip beach holiday because I didn't want them to worry um which I still maintain was the right thing to do but yeah it's a it was a very very interesting journey and quite transformational I think in lots of ways because it was a big experience in realizing that we can can control our minds and we can control our physiology and we can control you know that our thoughts don't can control us we can replace them and choose what we're thinking and therefore radically change our experience of life or what we're experiencing right and you how long did the climb take um well we had a couple of attempts the first time we went up i think we were on the wall for two or three days and we three days it wasn't going well but we were all kind of in denial and then we dropped our food by accident and it fell all the way to the ground we're like okay we don't have any food we've got x days left so we'll have to go back down and then we went back a second time and planned for it to take um i think i think we had enough supplies for six days and i think it took us five 
Right. Wow. So five days kind of camping on the rock face. Yeah. So you sleep on a, on a fabric ledge that you hang off the, the bolts or off the uh, protection that you've placed in the rock. And yeah, you tied in all night, harness on. Um, yeah. What's it was, that like? Well, to be honest, I loved that bit. That was, you could lie there and look up at the stars and just really, I, I really started to train my brain to appreciate where I was and to think mm-hmm. how incredible it was to be on this rock face, looking down into the valley at this small world beneath and, you know, traffic and just to be so far removed from it in this otherworldly place felt really incredible. The scariest bit for me after that initial process of kind of training my thoughts and my brain was leaving the portal edge. So whenever I left, I would basically behave like a bag um, rather than a person. So, you know, the people were kind of climbing across the rock, whereas I would just be dependent on the ropes, swing out into space and then have to pull myself up the rope. Um, So, yeah, that was leaving the ledge and just taking that swing into outer space was for me kind of petrifying each time. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. You must have done, I don't know how many thousand pull-ups uh to to complete that uh, how do you push yourself so hard um to get through these kind of things because I, I can only imagine how tired you must be because you were climbing for several hours a day right yeah so when you're not climbing you're to be honest i think it's mentally more exhausting than physical right. so i don't remember it being particularly physically difficult i'm sure it was for andy because he was leading the climb but for the rest of us, um, you know, it's not, you're not quite in that same tension zone physically. Right. But uh, when I pulled up the rope, I was pulling with a pulley in the system. So I wasn't pulling my full body weight. So physically, I don't remember it being that horrendous. But um, mentally, that was, the, that was the challenge, was the mental side. And mm-hmm. when you're not climbing, I was also part of the team in terms of belaying and and thinking about what you're clipping and unclipping and what's going where and what's feeding where and it was kind of it felt in my head from memory like a really 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 complicated mathematical calculation going on the whole time um just to stay on it watching everything and you know make sure that you're staying safe yeah and i suppose that on top of wrestling with your uh your own kind of you know demons around your you know fear of heights and you know going back to the rock face and uh, those kind of things i can only imagine that yeah uh, i suppose there must have been a lot of trauma locked in there still you yeah, know the memory yeah. of falling off a cliff and being in that environment mm-hmm. which i think until i got there i hadn't been aware it was still locked in my body your brain somewhere mm-hmm. so can we talk about greenland actually uh briefly because you crossed crossed the the ice cap right um on a skiing expedition is that right yeah so um we we started on the east coast of greenland and crossed mm-hmm. to the west and we worked on skiing an average of 20 kilometers a day so we figured it would take us about a month but we had enough supplies with us food and fuel to melt the ice because that's your only way of getting drinking water etc for 35 days so I was using a special sit ski um, because I can't walk. You have this kind of tightly fitting seat that you right. slot your bum into and then you just sat on top of a, a simple metal frame that's mounted on top of two skis that are in a fixed parallel position and then you just double pole 
which is physically the hardest thing I've ever done. So you, you, you're talking about El Capitan being physically hard, but really in comparison to Greenland, it wasn't. Greenland was just, and still I think remains just about the most physically difficult mm. thing I've ever done. What was the, um, I, I read uh, in a previous interview that you did about your hands um, at the end of each day, um, you had to peel your hands open essentially because they'd seized up the tendons had become so taut from constant gripping of the poles all day yeah <laughs> so you w we had a very kind of uh, strict regime that we would mm -hmm. ski at least 10 legs a day mm -hmm. so or was it eight to ten anyway i've forgotten the exact number but we would a leg involved skiing for 55 minutes and breaking for five minutes right um and then going again because you can imagine if you've got a group of you and then everybody's stopping at different times for the toilet or for snacks or for sun cream or whatever that you never yeah. get into that rhythm you can't really make progress that you need to so that's the kind of you know the five minute slot when you get everything done that you need to and then we in i think in the end it turned out to be a 50 minute ski and a 10 minute break because we could never get it all done in five minutes but we were very very um strict about that and just stuck to that routine mm -hmm. and we would always do a minimum of eight of those a day and sometimes up to ten to cover the ground that we needed to cover so amazing um yeah but during that i'm gripping the ski poles really tightly and my hands i think just you know weren't used to that um so when i woke up in the morning the tendons were just so tight it would be the first hand my friend anna would have to unpeel it to get it open and then uh, could perhaps use that hand to unpeel my other one afterwards <laughs> wow and then once you got going it was fine like anything once it gets warmed up and the circulation's going it was okay yeah. It's, how did you manage um, like other things? Because it must have been quite complicated for you because, you know, Greenland's not a particularly friendly place um, in terms of harshness of environment. And it can get pretty cold indeed and poor weather and things. Did you have to put any kind of much special planning into, uh, into the expedition to accommodate for, for your capabilities? Yeah, a, a lot. So, um, being paralyzed from the chest down means that so I have what's called complete paraplegia. So below there, I don't have any movement or any sensation. And that means that I also can't regulate my body temperature. So my blood vessels don't constrict and dilate like other people, like a normal physiological system would. So I'm much more prone to getting frostbite or hypothermia, especially in the extremities of my lower body. So yeah, there was lots of planning went in in terms of that, just trying to keep my legs and feet really warm. I ended up using a fish tank thermometer because it's got a few different sensors on it so yeah. that I could um, have one on my feet, one on my hips, and then a gauge that I could see to quickly and easily check the temperature there. Um, I had little heat pads between my socks so that they didn't burn my skin because they weren't directly on my skin, but also yeah. just to keep the feet warm. And then a special kind of sleeping bag made for the legs Mm -hmm. So lots of, um, yeah, lots of kit that my friends, um, Anna and her husband, Passy, who's Finnish, had helped, uh, you know, think the ideas through and help get things designed because, um, yeah, wouldn't have really have been safe to have gone there without considering all of those things. And then I think one of the biggest things that stops people with my kind of disability going into for adventures is the whole toileting side of stuff, which... Mm -hmm. We don't need to go into because it's probably not relevant for that many people but in summary you know i can't squat and hover it might take me an hour or more to go to the toilet and then yeah. um in terms of weeing i've got catheters so there was lots of stuff about being 
you know, you can't really afford to have any kind of catheter incident when you're in Greenland and you've got mm. no means of washing your limited amount of clothing, etc. So there was just lots of thought went into all of that to make sure that nothing got blocked, nothing would come undone. I, you know, I sealed all the joins in the system with cloth mm. tape and just thought through lots of tiny little details to really limit the risk of anything going wrong. Wow. Uh, what a fantastic experience. Are you <laughs> any plans to go back there or do anything like that? Um... Well, I think, yeah, I think you know that <laughs> we're in the process of planning um, the seventh continent, which is a magical and mysterious and precious continent, which has always attracted me, but I've always felt a great kind of, I suppose, to go to Antarctica, I've always felt this great responsibility that if I go there, I need to do, try and do something really special with it. Yeah. Um, and also it's a very expensive place to get to. So we have been very, very fortunate in securing some sponsorship and some mm -hmm. support from various businesses. Um, and I won't reveal who they are yet because that's uh, not public knowledge. But mm -hmm. yeah, planning in the process at the moment. And the plan is to leave in December next year and to be in Antarctica for January 2022. And I'm absolutely scared and intimidated and excited and all those things all rolled into one with tons of planning and training and attention to detail required to make sure that uh, I stay safe and the team stays safe and I don't put the team in jeopardy and all the rest of it so yeah. So what is the what is the goal of that expedition really? Um, what, what was I mean I don't know if you can talk about it yet I guess but what's the kind of the the mission objective? Um, yeah, so there's, there's a whole website about it, so it's not a secret. Um, the website's pop.karendark.com. Um, so pop stands for pole of possibility. So that kind of gives it away. We're planning to create a new pole called the pole of possibility. And it's all about inspiring that idea of possibility in people. I think so, sometimes, often, we're all really good at putting ourselves down, at talking ourselves down, at not believing in ourselves, at not believing what we might be capable of. And I've done just as much of that as anybody else has, even though you might not believe it looking at what I have done. But, you know, a lot of that has been just about pure um, keeping going and wonderful friendships that have helped me do all these things. But yeah, so the pole of possibility um, is what we'll be creating and it became clear to me what this had to be and what it had to be all kind of in a rather an interesting way so 79 is the atomic number of gold I was a gold geologist studying gold I'd forgotten that 79 was the atomic number of gold by the way because the, the geologist and chemist in me had kind of long gone but then in Rio at the Paralympic Games when I won the gold medal I also discovered on a video that I randomly watched on YouTube that I'd won the 79th medal for Britain in the oh, wow. games. And I was like, wow, that's really weird that it's that number. And it was also a number that it's a long story, but the team had been joking with me about this number all summer because there's a drink that I really liked from a cafe where we were training and I kept asking for it extra hot. And the woman said, ask for it at 79 degrees because that's the hottest we can make it. So then it was like this joke that I was asking for drinks at 79 degrees, but Little did I know how significant 79 degrees would become because I then discovered that 79 degrees latitude and longitude is in Antarctica. And not only that, but it was also like a feasible place to, to potentially ski to. Mm -hmm. It wasn't completely, you know, a million miles from anywhere else. Um, it happens to be about 79 nautical miles from the 
um, well actually yes yeah, 79 nautical miles from the base that most people fly into when they're taking adventure journeys in in antarctica so yeah as soon as i discovered this 7979 it's like, oh my goodness that's too weird <laughs> that's the point we have to go to so we're going to this random place where nobody's ever been and possibly nobody's ever wanted to go and maybe won't want to go but hopefully they will now because maybe someone else in the future will listen to this and go i want to go to the pole of possibility too yeah so that's the plan well, that what a strange um <laughs> yeah, how, how that's really inspiring um so you so you're going to go to antarctica next december is that and, and the, the aim of your quest 79 is to raise uh money for uh, a good cause right well that's one aim but the bigger aim actually was about getting other people involved so okay. what my what i really believe is that you know when we so you look People look at what I've done and they go, oh, it's so inspiring or whatever. But basically, I've been petrified with everything. <laughs> and I think when we um, want to achieve surprising things in life, we have to, it's the normal thing that we feel the fear. But yep. when we step into the fear, instead of running away from it or letting it stop us, mm -hmm. it takes us on an incredible journey and we can learn all sorts of things. So um, I suppose I really believe in the power of daring of having the courage just to begin something, even though all your logic and all your, intuition might you know be telling you um that not your intuition sorry but you know that your logical brain is telling you you can't do it or that your fear yeah. is telling you that you shouldn't but actually something in your intuition is just you know it feels really right to do it so i've been encouraging people to take their own quest 79 journey and calling it sort of find your inner gold so there's been some fantastic stories so far um for example a 10 year old Rowan, a boy from the Isle of Skye, heard me talk about it on the radio and he told his mum and dad that he wanted to climb 79 peaks in 79 weeks. And 79 weeks when you're a 10-year-old, that's, um, you know, that's a year and a half. That's quite a big chunk of your life. And he decided he was going to climb 79, 79 mountains in that time. Wow. And he's done it now and he raised lots of money for an African children's charity. Um, there's another girl, Chloe, who's got um, cerebral palsy and she decided she wanted to try and get out and ride a bike. So during lockdown, they did flybys, all their friends' houses, just waving, flying past the window on this tandem. And she's since got on and cycled 79 miles. Um, I talked to her last night and she raised £8,000 for the Spinal wow. Injuries Association, who I'm fundraising for. So, um, yeah, and then there's just loads of other wonderful little stories. Like, you know, my dad cycled 79 miles for 79 years. People have been doing really unusual things, like a guy ran a marathon, but only when 79 people had sent pictures of themselves donating blood because there was a child in his family with a rare blood disease. And so I'm collecting all of these stories and trying to encourage as many people as possible to, you know, to go, yeah, that sounds really cool. I want to do something like that do something different, maybe step out of my comfort zone a little bit, maybe raise some funds for a good cause, but not necessarily. It might just be enough just to do that. And then to join us on the flag that we're going to plant at the Pole of Possibilities. So building up a list of names and families or organizations where people have done things and uh, they'll be on the flag and help, helping just co-create this. Hopefully what you know the vision is that it's a point of inspiration, flag yeah. of inspiration for the planet, really. Amazing. Um Definitely a big fan of that. Um, so 79 podcasts, Sam. Yeah, that's it. Um, definitely something <clears throat> that I would I will uh, have a have a think about what I can do to help. Uh, 79. Hmm. 
we'll see. Uh, but I will. I'm definitely going to put. I'll put your the links to all this in in the show notes, so people can check that out. Um, yeah, that's great. But yeah, because I suppose the idea is, you know, when we if we want to change something in our lives, there's lots of people who are unhappy and or you know wish they could be something else or wish they could be i've had people lose 79 pounds of weight for example um but you know you don't do it unless you just make a commitment and you do something a little bit every day and Mm -hmm. that's how we make change and that's how we change ourselves and the world around us so i suppose that's the vision here is that people decide something they want to change and just have a go at doing it for yeah that's great i guess now now you say that it seems that that is kind of a theme that comes up when I speak to other um, explorers, um, you know, Dixie and Marion, you know, two people that are former guests on this podcast, they uh, both said the same thing, you know, kind of about set your goal, set your goals or your ambition towards something, but really it's never going to happen unless you start taking the first moves towards that. And, you know, I guess break it down into small, tiny little um, actions that you can take, you know, towards it. Um, yeah, I wanted to circle back a little bit and talk about resilience. Uh, I think probably a nice segue into that. Actually, what we've just spoke about. Um, you've obviously overcome a tremendous change in your life. What's your resilience strategy? What's your what? What has been your process um, for for your recovery? Um, and what's your kind of yeah your 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 approach to to resilience um for everything else that you that you uh, set your yeah mind? well first of all i've I've realized and probably only realized this in about the last month if i'm honest that i've really gone off the word resilience hmm. it sounds like it just sounds like hard work doesn't it, it sounds <laughs> like something really dull like oh god we've got to all be so resilient <laughs> Um, and I've realized that it's kind of built on ideas of stoicism, you know, just being, being stoical that way of, you know, just, you know, you've got to just crack on and get on with it. And, oh yeah. So for me, suddenly the ideas of stoicism and resilience feel exhausting. So I suppose I'm, I've shifted to a, a more positive perspective of, you know, what, and maybe this is something I've always done, if I'm honest, is gone, what can I learn from this? How can this how can this help me or other people in the future? So more kind of looking at the the possibilities that can come out of something, even though that thing might be not ideal, um, not what you wanted or planned and maybe not what you would have wished for, but the fact is it's happened. So there's no point, I guess, there's two sides to it for me. There is a side of you that's human that needs to perhaps grieve for what's lost. So if you've lost a person or... Like when I became paralyzed, I suppose I lost the person that I knew or the life that I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a grieving process, but at the same time, there's this kind of possibility process of, okay, wow, well, this is different. What might be possible in this new world, in this new way that things are? And I think it's balancing those two things so that we don't get sucked into the depression and the, the, you know, the darkness of the loss at the same time as not denying it by just focusing so much on you know, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger and all that, those kind of nice Mm. narratives that exist about, oh, you know, oh, it's not as bad for me as it is for that person. Therefore I should just get on with it and be strong. Mm. And of course, all those things are true to a degree, but at the same time, when we go through difficult stuff in life, it's not necessarily a comparative process. There might be starving children and there might be other people that 
you know, have got a more serious level of paralysis than I had, for example. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's still a big change or a big loss, whatever it is that an individual's experiencing. So I think for me, my philosophy on it is really about balancing those two things. And so as an example, when I was um, first paralyzed, I just had a kind of, I just kind of, I suppose, created kind of unconsciously create some boundaries around it. So I could cry at nighttime when I was in my flat on my own, just let out all that grief if I needed to. I could phone a friend and just have some support. But actually, when I opened my curtains in the morning, it was like, okay, now I go out into the world. And um, there's a lovely saying I like. It's a, apparently a Nigerian proverb. If your face is swollen from the severe beatings of life, smile and pretend to be a fat man. So um, I guess that's what I did. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Um, yeah, I think you've got uh, a really interesting um, perspective on that that I had not thought of before uh, around, I guess, the human element. And it's uh, what when you were talking, I was thinking about you know these other kind of like phrases, you know, around po uh, toxic positivity and those kind of things, and actually yes you do need to allow yourself to be a human and, and process things and it's actually potentially detrimental to you know bottle up grief and damaging to the to the recovery process so um yeah super uh interesting you yeah i mean there's lots of slogans that exist which are kind <laughs> of you know what you resist persists and yeah you know, disease and disease and all those kinds of things. So I do believe that we do need to process and experience and feel some of the really difficult emotions. Yeah. But I also think that we can kind of observe ourselves going through that process in a way uh -huh. and um, not necessarily get sucked into it in a way which is all consuming and removes the idea that there is, you know, a much brighter horizon <laughs> ahead as well. Mm -hmm. So, Do you think that's had carry over into your, into your sport? um and your athleticism uh particularly i'm thinking you know whilst you're training um that by no means could be easy um is that this sort of stoicism uh i guess um i don't pra practice help you or i think the word for me is not any of these things like stoicism or resilience it's really f i think it's about acceptance of what mm -hmm. is but only of acceptance of what is today yeah. or now and actually in five minutes time you might feel really different or when you wake up in the morning tomorrow it's going to be really different and so I one of the most powerful metaphors for me and that's helped me right through everything is just um I suppose landscape and 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 that connection I have with being in nature has really really helps me but the best metaphor for me is just the weather you know it's lashing down with rain for a few hours and it's absolutely miserable yeah. but actually then it stops and then you suddenly can see some blue sky and the sun comes out so i think when we're experiencing the really difficult stuff of life we have to just remind ourselves that it's okay just like feel miserable cry your eyes out do whatever you need to do but remember you know it's not this just for a bit it, then it'll stop and then suddenly you'll be laughing again and you know something will change so yeah. i suppose that really helped me especially in the early days to suddenly realize that our emotions are like the weather and that they don't control us unlike the weather might <laughs> you know we could let it we could let ourselves get really miserable when it's raining but you know we don't or we might do sometimes but generally we just carry on so i also think that you know it's that reminder that we don't have to be controlled by our emotions that we can 
with some strategies find a way to change them and we can yeah. feel what, what's helpful to feel but then we can also actually use our mind and our thoughts to help us move on and through it yeah there's a um i'll paraphrase it i guess it's from uh man's search for meaning book by victor e frankel i know the book i love it yeah uh one of the best books i read uh last year actually and he says that suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment which you can imagine yourself in a future without uh that suffering um and i guess perfectly ties into what you're saying if you're in if you're in a tough spot or you're halfway through a race and you feel like you're lungs are going to give out or you wake up in your tent and you're having to unpeel your hands before you can get going in the day if you can imagine yourself after that event um in a completely different scenario and envision that problem as a past problem then you cease to suffer um which i think is a quite a nice sentiment that um i try to i try to remember when when things are hard but you know well, I think the other thing we can do a lot of is create a lot of suffering for ourselves by, oh, yeah. by like, you know, by resisting stuff as well. So um, I'm thinking of an example. So, for example, today I had a training session to do, which I really wasn't feeling like doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought oh, I, could, I could try and do it before I speak to Sam or, if, or maybe I could do it tonight instead. And then you just go, then I'm going to, you know, then I'm just going to be procrastinating about it all day. And I'll probably just suffer all day because I'll be thinking, oh, I've got to do that. And I've, I've kind of learned much more just to go, just do it. Yeah. Do it now. If you've got time now, do it now. <laughs> and then it just kind of removes all the pain of like, oh, I didn't do that thing. And then you feel guilty and then you put pressure on yourself and then you're procrastinating and you, then you feel blah, 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 blah. It kind of creates all this drama. So I kind of learned more and more, I think, just to, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah just dive straight in it's also about i guess narratives as well is it you you can tell yourself a narrative like oh i'm not going to do that because uh, i'm not good enough or you know i'm never going to get through this because you know things are too bad or all this kind of thing when it actually takes a, a different lens or a different perspective i get i guess to actually look at the situation think this is temporary you can easily get through this um but if you're yeah. telling, if you're stuck in that mindset where you're telling yourself that narrative that uh, you know, you know, that this is the end of the world, or um, absolutely, the stories we tell ourselves are sometimes really helpful, mm-hmm. um, and then sometimes it can become really unhelpful. So I think we just need to notice what those stories are yeah. and change them yeah. as and when we need to. Yeah, make sure they're not directed in the wrong to the wrong uh, ending. Um, talking of which. Uh, I would love for you to share your some words of wisdom actually for anyone that might be listening to this that has a big goal that they think they can't achieve. What advice would you give to that person? Um so I used to love that saying by is it good I never know how to pronounce it, Goethe. <laughs> what you dream or what you dare or dream you can begin it, boldness has genius power and magic in it. So I used to hold that one fairly close to my heart and think, okay, well, I've thought of it. So everything begins with a thought and then there's a process. So, you know, if that thought, I suppose I call it having the seed of an idea. And then if the seed just keeps growing roots and shoots and won't go away, and it seems quite a resilient seed, shall we say, (laughs) but I'm like, okay, I need to pay some attention to this and try and start making something happen. Um, And then if, you know, sometimes we have ideas or thoughts and they, they disappear, they're not, crucial for us or that maybe not 
aligned with our values or important enough to us. So yeah, once you've got that thought and it won't go away, then I think it's time to listen to it and go, hey, well, how can we make this happen? And um, I suppose a bit like I talked about balancing, you know, that idea of balancing the um, the hard emotions with the possibilities of the future. Mm-hmm. I think there's something in this for me as well that I kind of, I often then create that kind of vision of what it is or or work with it for a while. Like, why do I want this? It's really important to know the why. Why is it important to me? Otherwise, if you've got no why or it doesn't stack up with what matters to you, then you're probably never going to muster up the, that inner strength to make it happen yeah and even if you do um, make it happen as soon as it gets hard you've got no, you if you don't have the why um, yeah it's a lot easier to quit so i think it's about balancing the vision and knowing what your why is along with the day-to-day of anything which can be quite tough sometimes because you need to just keep plugging away and working hard and sometimes you get tired or you run out of inspiration um and so i think it's just keeping those two things balanced and mm-hmm. keeping the big the big vision in mind and knowing why it is you want it and then plodding away day to day but also you know being kind to yourself so you let yourself off the hook sometimes if you really need to mm-hmm. but then also being determined enough that you just crack on and keep keep doing a little bit every day and you know you'll get there and I, and I really really believe that um, when you do that if you believe in what you're doing if the meaning's there for you then you will find other people that get on board with it because your passion for it will come through um, your enthusiasm will come through and your, the message or the meaning behind it will be communicated and people get excited by it with you. And then all sorts of people will appear and join you or help you. And, you know, that's how we make amazing stuff happen in the world is mm-hmm. one person. Everything has to begin with one person's idea. And only when that becomes more and more, well communicated and shared with others does it really manifest into a reality yeah uh, i couldn't agree more um it's been really really interesting to speak with you today i i, I feel like i'm i've got a new lease of life uh, and i know a lot more about handling problems and i feel a lot, in, a lot more inspired to take on some more challenges for myself um i'm excited to hear that that's great yeah um yeah, I really, I really do. I think, I think it's, speaking with you has been su- super exciting, and I, I wish you all the best with your Antarctic um, expedition. I'm going to be following that journey religiously. You have a website, right? Uh, KarenDark.com. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So um, I'll put all the links and everything in the show notes so that anyone can follow you and get involved with Quest Seventy Nine. Um, is there, you said you don't use social media much, but is there any, a place where people can follow you for? Yeah, on Instagram, I, my handle is at handbikedark, handbike, all one word, and dark, D-A-R-K-E. Great. Um, Twitter's at kdark, and Facebook, I'm there somewhere. I, can't, I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, of course, you're welcome back on here anytime. Uh, It's been wonderful speaking with you and I hope you have a marvellous rest of the week. Thank you, Sam. You too. Really glad to be here and um, I look forward to hearing the 79 episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Someday soon, I hope. (laughs) Cheers. Later. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Expedition Reel. If you enjoyed it, I would love if you could share with a few friends on social media. And don't forget to subscribe. See you soon.